Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and have our means. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times and ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus, the Areophagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may we be as bold as Paul in declaring your truth and your glory. Settle our hearts now, open our minds and our eyes to the truth you will reveal through the message. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to get into some air conditioning after this hot week, right? Uh, My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a privilege to be your pastor. Like, truly, I love you guys if you're members here. Um, I'm really grateful to be here today. Uh, If you're a guest with us, welcome. Uh, 
you know, what, one of the things that we love uh, is we love people investigating truth at this church. And so if you're somebody who you may have a lot of doubts about Christianity or about God, or maybe you have a lot of hurts and pains, you are welcome here with all of your questions, all of your doubts, all of that, because this is a place where you can come and, and seek truth. And we believe that truth is found in the Bible. And so that's why at this church we preach through books of the Bible, and right now we're going through the book of Acts. So if you don't have a Bible open from that reading we just did, make sure you grab one. There's Bibles set around the room. You can turn to Acts 17. We're actually going to preach the whole chapter today, and that's on page 926 in those Bibles that we set around the room. And today's going to be fun because uh, I got, we're team preaching this. This isn't my security guard up here, okay? <laughs> this is uh, Ricky Beach. Everybody say hi, Ricky. Ricky is an OG living stoner, and uh, li- Ricky's been around living stones for a long time. He actually helped to plant the Sparks Living Stones Church back in the day, back in 2011. He's a deacon at the Reno Church, and he's in our church planting residency. So we hold a residency here at the Sparks Church where we train guys who want to plant churches. And uh, so Ricky drives out in the spring and fall for two hours every week to get training because he wants to plant a church in Fallon. And so uh, they got a community group going out there, and we're just praying that God would do something. And today's is going to be his first public sermon. So uh, <laughs> judge him harshly, all right? The first sermon that I preached, I cried and yelled for 10 minutes, and then that was it. So I've gotten a tiny bit better. We are, uh, so just, you know, you'll do great. You'll do great. Okay, so Acts. Let's get into this, all right? Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts, the entire book of Acts is broken up into three parts. And it's kind of summarized by what Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8 to his disciples, he says, My Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in Acts chapter 2, we see the disciples taking the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, we see them taking it to Samaria. And in Acts chapter 10, they start taking it to other people outside of those regions. And what we get here in this last section of Acts, we're going to have 17 through chapter 28, is Paul's commitment to take the message of Jesus to the end of the world. And uh, he takes it to Rome. And any ancient reader would have thought, man, if you can get the gospel to Rome, you've basically got it to the whole world. And so that's what his commitment is. So we're calling this section in the book of Acts, Revival and Resolve. Revival means awakening to the beauty of God, and resolve means a firm determination to do something. And so for this theme, we're going to have a nautical theme in our art. So that's why we have an anchor up here. It's awesome because it's cutting a snake's head off, kind of a symbol of uh, when we're rooted in God, it destroys the works of the devil. Um, the, the main symbol is an anchor because... The anchor is an ancient Christian symbol for perseverance. It represents the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it represents this, that when you are anchored in God, you can weather any storm. And so that's, it represents resolve. And Paul was a resolved man. He was resolved to plant churches. He was resolved to pro- proclaim truth. He was resolved to have joy even when he was in prison. He was resolved to fulfill his calling, and he was resolved to make Jesus famous. And we want to be a resolved church in the same way. Now, that's a stark contrast to our society, isn't it? Our society is a scattered society. And we, even as Christians, tend to be scattered people. I mean, 
if you just think about TV, I've said this before, but when you're watching TV, the camera angle changes every seven seconds. When you're watching a commercial, every three and a half. And so what that produces in your mind is a scattered brain that needs constant stimulation. What this has turned out to be, I, I think in a handful of ways, is it produces a, a people who have a hard time staying steadfast. Most millennials can't hold down a job for more than four years. College students change their major six times. You guys know that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And even for those who claim that Jesus is very important to them, they call themselves Christians. The average person goes to church 1.2 times a month who claims to be a Christian. We are a scattered society, but if we want to see God move, we need to be a resolved society. We need to be a resolved people. And so that's what this last section of the book is going to invite us to. And today we get to this concept where Paul is resolved to proclaim truth in each city, in each circumstance. And he goes to three places, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Each one of those cities represents a different type of people. In Thessalonica, we're going to say that they were hard soil. They were resistant to truth. In Berea, they were fertile soil. They were people who were eager for truth. And in Athens, they were foreign soil. They were people who had no concept of biblical truth. And so Paul is resolved to proclaim truth in different ways in each one of those cities. And it's important for us to pay attention because each of us have those different types of people in our lives, don't we? We all have people who are resistant to the truth. We all have people who are hungry for the Bible. And we all have people who have no concept of the Bible in our lives. And so we need to pay attention to how Paul relates to proclaim truth to them so that we also can proclaim truth to our friends. So Ricky's going to come up and take the next section. Good morning. morning. All right, if you guys haven't grabbed a Bible already, please do so, um, so we can all stay together. We're on page 926 of the ones around there, and it's Acts 17. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead. So we got Paul, as, as Kyle said, in, in hard soil or in tough soil here. So for three weeks, he has to reason, he has to explain, and he has to provide evidence. So I, I don't really have a green thumb. My wife's here. She knows that for sure. Um, but I can kind of tell the difference between a, a, you know, a good soil and a tough soil. A good soil accepts that water in and it holds it so it can nourish the plant. Where a tough soil is, um, it won't be permeated. The water hits and rolls off and it just goes away. Um, So that's what Paul's dealing with here in Thessalonica, tough soil. So he reasons and he explains and he proves to them from the scriptures. So he's in the synagogue and he's dealing with the Jewish people. Um, And there's a presupposition he has with that because they know the scriptures. So there's a prior knowledge that he's working off here. Uh, Plainly, he's just using verses, passages from the Old Testament. He's going through Isaiah, the Psalms, and he's probably using the whole biblical history of their people to be able to prove his truth. Now, uh, it kind of reminds me of trying to explain things to kids. You know, you you give them a perfectly good answer, but they keep asking why. Why? Why? And then how? How? So Paul is kind of cutting that off, and he's building his evidence. He's mounting it to his truth. Uh, Jesus did this too on the road to Emmaus. Uh, in Luke 24, we see him with two disciples, and um, he's using the Old Testament, and he's, uh, um, excuse me, 
Um, he's interpreting the scripture in all the scriptures, the things concerning him. And he, he did that on just a one-day walking trip. But Paul's having to do this over a three-week period. So he's going to have to use patience, and he's going to have to be clear in what he says to that tough soil. So let's get verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead. Now we need a little word help here. Christ means Messiah. means the anointed one. It's not a last name like Kyle Bateson or Ricky Beach. It's a descriptive term. So why is he having to specifically tell them about suffering and rising from the dead? See, the Jews were waiting on a Messiah king. The Jews knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They were waiting on that royal line of David to come through. And they were waiting for their political king. A king that would reign on earth and return them back to a powerful nation. But Paul's explaining to them that's not going to happen. The Messiah is coming to save, but he's going to do it as a servant king. A servant king to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. Not so the Roman Empire would be, con- would be conquered, but so sin and death would be conquered. Sin and death that's inherent to all of us. You see, what they wanted and what they're looking for isn't what they really needed. They didn't need a king to conquer the Roman Empire. They didn't need to be a great ethnic nation again. They needed a savior to conquer their sin. And that's what Paul was explaining and proving to them. Let's finish that verse. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So I, I don't think Paul crescendoed this on, on the third week. He didn't wait till the last 10 minutes of his sermon on, on week three to say this. He was continually doing this the whole time. Um, but we see it here as a summarization. And this is the crux of Christianity. This is the very center of it. Paul is saying, the one I've been telling you about, the Messiah that must suffer and be, and be raised from the dead, the one coming to save is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Christ. And he's already done it. They didn't have to wait anymore. For, it was for his glory and for his salvation. So the, the, Paul's saying, the truth is, the truth that you've been missing this whole time and I've been explaining and proving to you is he's the one. He's the one you're looking for. It's, it's a simple, but it's a bold proclamation of the truth. And it took patience and a clear explanation in that tough soil. So let's see a response. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking and bringing them out to the crowd. When he couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people of the city authorities were disturbed. And when they, heard these, when they had heard these things, when they'd taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. So proclaiming the truth always brings a response. People have to do something with it. For some of you guys, it's the first time you've heard that truth. And some of you have heard parts of the Bible before, but you've never had the truth explained to you. So like Paul, that's what we do. We explain that Jesus lived, suffered, died, and rose again for our sins. And some of them were persuaded. They believed. They were saved. It's amen, right? See, the truth of this gospel, it's very simple. Luke summarizes it here in just one verse. So we don't need to have a theology degree. 
We don't need to be able to read Hebrew or Greek. We need to have a heart that desires for people to be saved. A heart that will patiently and clearly explain the truth. But not all will believe. Now what's happening here is kind of a a parallel to Jesus and the religious leaders. Um, But these religious leaders are also twisting the truth. They're removing that clarity. Um, They're even saying the world is being turned upside down when actually it's being turned right side up. It's being set straight. So not only are they twisting the truth, but they're actively trying to stop that proclamation. You see what's happening to Jason here? He's being drugged from his house. You know, they didn't just grab his hand and just kind of pull him along. They grabbed him and dragged him on the ground, cutting him up everywhere. I know we may not worry about being assaulted over the truth, but a lot of times we worry about how it's going to affect our friendships, what people are going to think of us, you know, what we're going to be excluded from. And the truth is, some of those things are going to happen. So resolve is needed. Now, before Thessalonica, Paul was coming from Philippi, where he's actually beat and put in prison over the truth. And now he's going to get kicked out of this city. But he wasn't swayed. He remained resolved to preach the truth. So, in Thessalonica, there's Tough soil, people resistant to the truth. But now Paul, he escapes for his life. It says that they send Paul away at night, and he gets to a new city, the city of Berea. So let's look at that, verse 10. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And there we can deduce that he began preaching the gospel. So here's what I want you to know. Paul it immediately goes to Berea, but it says that the brothers sent him away. And that should be some good encouragement to us. Because there's going to be times where you are proclaiming truth to people who are resistant to it. And you're like, man, nobody's ever going to believe. But here we see that even when Paul was in Thessalonica, in hard soil, some people believed. Amen? So that, that should give us a little bit of encouragement. And then they sent him away by night, like a ninja. Okay, Paul says, escape like a ninja, and he goes to Berea, and the first thing that he does when he gets there is he goes and he starts preaching again. Now, I'm not sure that's what I would be doing if I had to run from the last city for my life for preaching the gospel, but that's what Paul does. So what we see here is Paul is a resolved man. He's resolved to proclaim truth. Like He really, really believes that the truth will set you free. And so he really wants people to be set free. So he goes in to proclaim it. Now, Berea is a lot different than Thessalonica. Okay, look at verse 11. It says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So what we see here is the author, Luke, says that Thessalonica and Berea are two different places. Thessalonica was hard soil, but Berea was fertile soil. These people, it says, were eager for the truth. They were hungry for the truth. It's kind of a description of what I hope living stones would be, a people who are eager to hear the truth of God, were hungry. They were hungry for it. And when Paul preached, they didn't just take him at his word. I love that. It says that they examined the scriptures. So, and Paul, he was, a, he was an awesome preacher too. So Paul's just up there preaching and he's throwing down and they're sitting back. They're like, 
hold on, we'll get back to you. We're going to go check for ourselves. <laughs> and there's a sense where I love that. They examined the scriptures to see what was true. They were not swayed by man's opinion alone. They valued the scriptures above man. And that's the kind of church that we want to be, isn't it? That we value the scriptures above the preacher's opinion, even mine. And we also value the scriptures above our own personal opinions. And they examined the scriptures to see if it was so. And it says here that many of them therefore believed in verse 12. Many of them therefore believed. So what I think Luke is doing in that verse is he's saying there seems to be a link between hunger for the truth and faith in the truth. Hunger and faith. And so perhaps we are in this room struggling to believe, struggling to have faith. I think Luke would ask you, are you hungry for truth? Because if you're hungry for truth, it will probably lead to faith if you give a true investigation. I like how Luke describes their examining of the scriptures, to their testing of Paul by the Bible as a good thing. And what he, he, he does that as a good thing. And, and if you're somebody who's a skeptic in the room, you should be encouraged by that because it means this. If you seek truth, you will find it. And you can test the scriptures. You can test the scriptures. We don't have, you know, the scriptures will hold their weight. Um, and as Christians who are proclaiming the truth, I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He's like, you don't have to, de- the Bible's like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. You just unleash a lion. You just let it out. <laughs> and so we can trust that the Bible will hold its weight in pointing to Jesus, in pointing to Jesus. And so we should be examining it. We should be seeing if the whole thing does point to him. We shouldn't just be taking each other at man's opinion. But look at what happens after many people believe. Oh, and by the way, note that many, he notes again that many of the high-standing Greek women believed. And I think the reason why Luke is doing that is because it was common in that day for people to demean women, but the Bible continues to uphold women as the pillars of the faith and the forerunners of the faith. Hallelujah. It's pretty cool. So verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who were conducted, who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So what we see here is people from Thessalonica, they hear about the word being preached down in Berea, and then they come down there to hate on Paul down there, Okay. As Taylor Swift says, haters going to hate, 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 hate. And that's what's going on here. I mean, you could probably summarize Paul. A lot of Paul's ministry is running from haters, <laughs> running from haters. But here's, here's what I think we should gather from that. As Ricky said, it doesn't matter where you are. When you proclaim Jesus, you will face resistance. You don't believe me? Go start talking about Jesus at work. <laughs> Go start talking about Jesus at your family gatherings. You're going to face resistance. You're going to face resistance. But Paul is resolved to do it. And so what ends up happening is these guys come down to hate. And then so Paul has to flee again for his life. But what Paul does is he leaves Timothy and Silas. And the application for us here is this. That when you come across somebody who is hungry for the truth, they don't just need you to proclaim it once. They need investment and discipleship. And Paul leaves for them Timothy and Silas because he knows that they need that this whole faith thing is a journey. 
It's not like you come to church once and all of a sudden you walk out and you're good. You need people to hold your hand kind of and walk you through the scriptures. And that's why we need faithful leaders who are, who are eager to proclaim the truth. And so Paul leaves Timothy and Silas. And so the big idea is that Berea is a, is a fertile place for the truth of God and the truth of Jesus. But they weren't willing to just, um, they weren't just willing to take truth at face value. They wanted to examine to make sure that what they were receiving was actually truth. So an illustration would be like when you, you know, I know because you're all walking around with hundreds in your pocket. When you go to a store and you use a $100 bill, right? What do they do? They take that and they like examine it. Now, when you do that, you're not like, how dare you examine my $100 bill, right? But what the person is doing, they want your money. I guarantee it. They want your money, but they want to make sure that it's real money. And in the same way, Berea wanted truth, but what they wanted to make sure was, was that it was real truth, that the Bible really did testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so they examined it. And it, it leaves us with a couple questions. The first question, I think, is natural. Is your heart fertile for the truth of God? Are you here today because somebody else made you come? Or are you here today because you are hungry for the truth? And if you are hungry for the truth, are you willing to examine what people are saying, even the pastors, by the scriptures? In an age that has so many social media platforms that are proclaiming, we have the truth, Christians need to be people who are willing to examine the truth. And so, and, and we need to be people who are saying, yes, we're, we hear you, but we're also going to test it by the scriptures. And I invite you as the pastor of Living Stones to do that. And if you're somebody who is, you wouldn't proclaim yourself to be a Christian, I think that this should be great encouragement for you. Keep searching for the truth. Keep looking into it. Look into Christianity. Look into what the Bible says. Look into what other religions say too. Because I believe that if you give it an honest look, you'll find the honest Christ. You'll find the honest Lord. The second thing for us is how are you investing into, if you are a Christian, how are you investing into the people that do want truth? A lot of us have friends who would love to know what the Bible says. Are you taking time to walk them through a, a Bible passage? A lot of us have, uh, you know, ha when we bring up Jesus, they're like, man, I would, I'd be interested to know more. Are you making time and sacrifice for that to happen? As we see with Paul, he left Timothy and Silas because people who are hungry for the truth need discipleship and investment. And guess what? If you're telling somebody about the gospel, you're the person to invest into their life. So how are you making time to invest into them? Those are the two application points. People are hungry for the truth. They're out there, and our job is to proclaim to them. We need to be resolved to proclaim the truth. All right, so we have Paul now in Athens on his own. Um, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, the spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's in Athens now. Now, at this point, Athens isn't the great city it once was, but it's still living on from its history. So it's a place of culture. It's a place of thinkers and philosophers, you know, amazing architecture, statues made of gold, silver. Um, th this is the kind of place we want a vacation to, right? 
You know, you think Paul would just kind of take a break from all that mission stuff and go, go on those duck boat tours to explore the city. But he doesn't because something keeps bugging him. He keeps seeing idols, idol after idol after idol. Now let's slow down here just for a second and let that kind of sink in for a minute. Um, that Athens was known as the birth, birthplace of democracy. It was, some people said it's the cradle of Western civilization. So the birthplace of democracy came from a city overrun with idols. Yeah, we need to stop here also for a second because I know idols don't kind of make their way through time to our culture now. You know, we don't have a lot of golden statues, silver altars that we go lop the heads off of chickens for. Um, But we have a lot of man-made idols, stuff out of our heart. Because idols are things that we turn to for fulfillment outside of God or instead of God. The behavior of my kids. Is an idol. Uh, Many times their obedience is where I get my worth from. I try to make it fulfill me and it always fails. Because they were never meant to fulfill me. And it's wrong of me to even put that burden on them. So Paul sees idols everywhere. And he's provoked. He's provoked to anger. And I know that anger isn't good in our society. Anger at not agreeing with someone else's beliefs. But Paul has a jealousy of worship being offered to other gods instead of the true God. So think about it like this. Uh, the, the Golden State Warriors won the NBA title this year, right? So, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Imagine being a Warriors fan, walking into a Bullies or another sports bar, and you just see posters everywhere celebrating the 2017 NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks. <laughs> now, as a diehard Warriors fan, you'd be kind of provoked, right? Like, hey, what are you guys doing? Why, why are you celebrating them? They didn't win. They didn't do anything. So how much more provoked is Paul when that scenario is with the true God? So his provoked spirit doesn't lead him to go out and try and rip down these idols. He's not grabbing ropes, trying to pull them down. He's not trying to petition the government to get rid of them. He's especially not blasting their worshipers on Facebook. See, he has a heart for the truth, but he also has a heart for wayward people. So it leads him to reason with them and proclaim the truth. In the synagogue, which was, which was his custom, but then also in the marketplace with all different kind of people groups. And this is where we begin to see Paul engaging in foreign soil. I know we don't really have anything similar to a, you know, a huge marketplace where there's daily communion of different cultures, but we have similar places like coffee houses the barbecues in your neighborhood, you know, even the bleachers of a little egg field. So if we're provoked for the truth to be proclaimed, if we care for other people, we can't keep the truth of the gospel bottled up in our church buildings. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, Maybe know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what, they, what these things mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there had spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul isn't in Kansas anymore. 
He's not even in Thessalonica or Berea anymore. There's no presupposition to a Savior coming. There's no previous knowledge of Scripture. He's in foreign soil. He's in such a foreign soil that they call him a babbler. And that's a, it's a long history of a slang word that was about a bird just picking up random seeds. So they're saying Paul is just taking random things and trying to throw them against the wall and get a, get a religion out of it. Simply, they, they don't know what he's talking about. It's a foreign divinity to them. But that opens the door for Paul because they like to hear things that are new. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is starting to address the people, and it's important to see how he starts off. He doesn't start by confronting or bashing his listeners. He starts by coming alongside them. He's using some common ground they both have. He's in foreign soil, but he's speaking in their terms. So I see that you're very religious. You have all these objects that you enjoy worshiping. Well, let me tell you about that. We can connect to our culture in that way, too. Culture says God is love. Well, he is, and he he loves so much that he sent his son to die for sinners like us. Our culture values justice. God does, too. God sent his son so justice would be paid for. And our society loves inclusiveness, you know, all different peoples being involved. So does God. The gospel isn't just for the Jews in the synagogues. It's not just for the churchy people. It's for all types of people. There's no distinction. So there's connections we can make on the ground level with the people around us. Verse 24, we're going to see Paul's proclamation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, because he's not actually far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So Paul begins his proclamation as God is, with God as creator. So creation isn't randomness like the Epicureans were there thought. Um, It's one God, Lord, over all things. So it's not Zeus, God of the heavens and the skies, and it's not Poseidon, God of the ocean. And as God God the creator, he can't be reduced to man-made things. He can't be reduced to his creation. He's not of his creation as these pantheistic Stoics believed. So there's an order here. God himself being outside of creation as a creator. Man being part of creation and in it, and the makings of man, the statues, the golden idols, stone images being below man. What Paul is saying here is, how much greater is the creator than the created things of the created things? If he's much greater, how can you worship these created things? You can imagine Paul kind of raising his hand and pointing to the Parthenon in verse 24. as He said, God doesn't live in temples made by man. And in 29, we ought not to think of the divine being like gold or silver pointing to a statue. 
Created things are not worthy of worship, but the creator is. 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries that are their dwelling place. So from his creation of one man, we know that to be Adam, he made all nations. We also know from that one man's heart, Adam, came sin. Sin and idolatry that then comes to every man and woman in every nation. Hold on to that because we're going to use it a little later. So not only is he creator, but he's sovereign over his creation. He didn't create and then kind of step back and see what happens. He created, but he's actively working in his creation. There's a purpose to his creation. There's a purpose to you. It's his purpose. So he's the giver of everything, and he has determined the time in which they live and where they live. So why, why is that important? So they, that they, verse 27, so they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far off from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So feeling their way toward him. Uh, we need to think of someone in the dark, you know, trying to feel their way along, trying to get to something, reaching their hands out, trying to grasp, but they're just getting thinner. But he's not far. He's not a distant God. But because of that inherent sin, because of that sinful condition, they can't see him. We're blinded in this darkness. But God's using Paul's proclamation to reveal himself to them. So if this is all foreign to you right now, I'd like to let you know that you're in this church right now for this very reason. To see Jesus for who he is and what he's done. You know, maybe someone dragged you here or maybe you just kind of stumbled upon the church, but it's not a random happening. God puts you here today. And church, that's why God put you in Nevada, in Sparks, on your street, in your house in 2017. That's why Paul was in the Areopagus on that day with those people. So that those without God, to whom God is completely foreign, can see him through the proclamation of the truth. So Paul's uh, quoting two Greek poets here, Epimenides and Aratus, to his point. So he knew their culture, and we need to know our culture. We need to know the people around us, you know, what they like, their struggles, their terms. We just can't buddy around with church people like we tend to do. So why do they, why do they need God? Why do we need God? Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God has overlooked this idol worship and sin, but now he commands repentance of it because there's a judgment coming, a time when we will be judged in righteousness. If we think really hard about how good we are, about how righteous we are, that should make us tremble. Because we're not being compared to our peers or to Hitler. We're being compared to a perfect and holy God. That's the standard. So how many of us can stand in innocence in front of God? And this judgment is going to happen through a man he has appointed, it says here. 
Now, this isn't the man from a couple verses before Adam, because Adam brought in the sin. He's in this situation with us. The man here is the same that Paul proclaimed to the Thessalonians and Bereans. It's Jesus. And that's a lot of dread, huh? If it ended here, we'd be helpless and we'd be hopeless. But the end of this verse is glorious. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Jesus is the judge. But for those who believe, he's your savior. The Messiah is not dead, but alive. And your assurance of your salvation rests in him, not in you. Because of his perfect life, his suffering and death, the punishment for our sins was taken care of. And his righteousness was credited for us. By rising from the dead, he conquered that eternal death on our behalf and sits at the right hand of God. And as God, he has the authority and power to be both judge and savior. So what does that have to do with the judgment? Paul's saying here that through faith in Jesus, you can stand at the judgment and say, no, I'm not righteous. But my Messiah, Jesus is on my behalf. And there always is this response. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So again, with truth, when truth is proclaimed, there's always a response. Some mocked. Some tried to put it off to another day, maybe next week, maybe in a couple weeks. But some believed. And that's why Paul proclaimed this truth. And that's why we do too. Because by God's grace and through the proclamation of the truth of the gospel, people will be saved from fertile soil, from tough soil, and from foreign soil. And God will be glorified. Let's pray. God, we praise you because you are creator. You are a sustainer. Um, you've given your son so that we may, can, can be saved. Um, God, change our hearts to want to proclaim that to sparks, to our neighbors, um, to the parents at school. Um, give us hearts that just burst out with joy.